And so we come to the end of David F. Friedman and Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Trilogy. This is also sadly the end of the partnership between Friedman and Lewis that produced 12 feature films. Unlike Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs before it, this film had a difficult production due to its temperamental star. When filming was completed in 1963, their financier, Stanford Kohlberg, was withholding profits from Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs under the guise of needing it to show a Chicago bank in order to get a line of financing for many more gore films to come. But it never materialized. And the film went unfinished for over two years. Its release paled in comparison to Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs and was largely forgotten. That is, until 1972, when a triple feature billed as the Blood Trilogy started touring across the United States. Audiences were thrilled to see Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs on screen in cities and towns that they, they had never played before. And they also lost their minds to the third film on the bill. It is the movie we're watching tonight. It is Color Me Blood Red. It's Death by Video! It's time to watch a movie you never seen. There might be some ninjas or a crazy death machine. There'll be smiles there'll be tears you won't watch another movie for about 600 years it's time for death by video time for death by video Bill and Kit and Graham. Hello, I'm Phil. I'm Kit. And I'm Graham saying welcome back to another episode of Merry Movie Mayhem. We are uh, going into the third and final uh, entrant, although not really the final because there were, well, that's our next film, Blood Feast 2. But this is. Um, the, the third film in the original Blood trilogy, and it wasn't actually meant to be a trilogy. They actually meant to continue making films, but then a lot of stuff happened that made that not possible, and we'll get into that later. Before we watch the movie, though, guys, have we seen anything interesting since we last recorded only a couple days ago? <laughs> Phil, go for it. Um, I watched the very late uh, UK video Nasty Mikey. Uh, Ooh. Oh, yeah. That's the one about the killer kid, right? The killer kid, uh, yeah. Um yeah, it was the one with the tagline, um, Jason and Freddy were kids once, too. That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the best acted movie, but uh, nevertheless very enjoyable. So yeah, it's got it's got uh, Ashley Lawrence from the Hellraiser movies in a supporting nice. role. And she's an actress that I think should have had a much bigger career. She's yeah. awesome. She's not good in this movie, <laughs> but uh, mm. yeah, so... The kid from Blank Check is a bigger threat than the Cenobites, quoting my Letterboxd review. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's true in both Blank Check and Mikey, I'm assuming. I always remember Mikey was one of those movies that, you remember the show, like, what was it? There was some, I think, Clips, that's the name of the show, the YTV show Clips. They actually had Mikey on one of their episodes, and they would show, like, but the thing is, they couldn't show R-rated like clips. No, sure. so they would just show like little snippets of films. Of part of the I was film. on clips. You were on clips. Okay, I was. Okay, okay, okay. We gotta stop everything and explain to our <laughs> to our American listeners. YTV is a channel in the '90s. I think it arguably hit its peak where it had the After School Zone, aka the Zone, PJ Freshville. They had great shows like the Anti Gravity Room. Uh uh oh, YTV News, which was a, a fun weekly news program for kids. And they had the show Clips, where they would show you clips from a movie and then ask trivia questions about it. What episode of Clips were you on, Phil? Some episode circa early 93. Okay, what were the films that were shown? Oh, wow. Uh, Meet the Applegates was one of the films for yeah. some of oh. yeah. I always remember they would play like real, like films yeah. that, like, well, I guess it was films that could get the rights to, so it was yeah. like a weird grab bag of different sure, films. Sure, yeah. Was, it Meet the App- was that the Dabney Coleman film? It was with Ed Bagley, uh... Maybe I'm thinking of... Is that where they're aliens? Yes. Yeah, okay. Daphne Coleman is in that one. Okay. I remember my dad rented us that one thinking it was a family film, and it turns out it is not. No. Some of the music clips, it was, there was like Eric Clapton, I think was mm-hmm. one of them. And Yeah, it's interesting. Meet the Applegates was actually released in the Philippines and the United States as just the Applegates. Okay. Yeah. Now, it's, it's a weird one, that's for well, sure. Was I correct about Daphne Coleman? Yes, you were correct. Daphne Coleman was in Meet the Applegates. Right. Way to go, memory. And Stockard Channing. 
Yeah, so basically there were these, I think there were three minute rounds. You had to collect as many stars as possible. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah. It was and very, I lost. Yeah. Well, whatever. You, you made it to the dance. We'll put yes. it that way. That's yeah. that's a, a dream that I had growing yeah. up in Newfoundland would never have been able to make. It was a three-way tiebreaker, and I lost the tiebreaker. Oh, bummer. I also remember another film on there that was very bizarre was they showed um, clips from the movie Backbeat, the Beatles in okay. Hamburg movie, which is also not age-appropriate for all the kids that were on it. Starring the members of Afghan Wigs, I believe. They did, they did some of the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was... Um, uh, what's his face? Um, bad guy from Blade. Why am I trying? Steven a- Dorff. Steven Dorff. Yeah, trying to blank on him. Um, playing- Who now hates Marvel movies, <laughs> even though he started it. Yeah. Um, anything else, Phil? That you've seen? Uh, yeah. Today I watched uh, Bad Girls Go to Hell. So nice. What did you think of that one? I, that one I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, that a, was a it's blast. I don't want to say it's a fun one, but it's very enjoyable. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess a blast is not the right term, but yeah, it's yeah. You know, the last Dorse Wishman I watched was Nudie Cutie. This one's more of a roughie. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's more of a roughie for sure. Yeah, it's the bizarre film. Anything else, Phil? That's all I've seen. That's good. All right, Kit, what have you seen since we last recorded? I was curious about the films you've seen that are bad. <laughs> um, on my letterbox. <laughs> I have not had a chance to watch too much. I watched. Um, I rewatched Heat. For the uh, the first time in uh, a decade or so, I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen. Nice. Him. I'd completely forgotten most of the people. I mean, obviously Al Pacino, Val Kilmer, and Robert De Niro. But other than that, I was like, oh wow, Natalie Portman. Oh yeah. Wow, look at that. It's um, Hank Azaria. Hank Azaria. Oh, Henry Rollins. <laughs> Henry Rollins. Yeah, who is in like every '90s movie, as it turns out. He was just yeah. very prolific. Tone Loke. <laughs> Tone. Wait, Tone Loke's in the movie? Oh yeah, yeah he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so <laughs> as what. He's uh, the guy at the club. Uh, oh, yes. He's the guy that gives him the information. Tom mm-hmm. Sizemore's character, yeah. About Tom Sizemore's character who always says slick, which, you know, mm-hmm. maybe never... Um, Caught on? Well, maybe if you're a criminal, don't have a catchphrase that can be easily identified. Yeah. Also, surprisingly enough, Tom Sizemore is the least, one of the less scuzzier uh, characters in this movie. He's yeah. like yeah. the nicer bad guy. Yeah. Uh, he goes out in a hail of bullets. Except when he uses a child as a human shield. Yes, yeah. yes. His character goes down, <laughs> downhill <laughs> from that point. He goes because down before swinging. then, you were like, oh, he's a lot better than Ted Levine. Yeah, um, oh, way better. <laughs> that swastika on his chest always like is just like, ugh. <laughs> I but, guess Ted um, Levine got typecast as just the worst character in a movie. Except in the remake of The Hills Have Eyes where he played the Where the he's dad. the father. He's yeah. the heroic dad, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Val Kilmer survives that, which I'd mm-hmm. forgotten. I thought Val Kilmer definitely died yeah. in that movie, and he does not. Yeah. But uh, what a what a great movie! What a what a wonderfully uh, bizarre job. I mean, a good yeah, acting. Ted Levine was one of the cops. No, no, he's the uh, he's the scumbag. Um, he's the serial killer, actually. No, yeah. Grows, the actor's name is Kevin Gage. Damn it! Who was once married to Kelly Preston? Wow, what? <laughs> that's a that's a weird one. Yeah. You, you mm-hmm. might be right. Okay, so... Um, Ted Levine's one of the cops. Uh. I, I may have done Ted Levine dirty. <laughs> Hold on here, listeners. Hold on. Uh, I think uh, Phil says this with such authority that I'm, I'm inclined to believe oh, him. Oh, yeah. I, I have to Google it. Yeah, Ted Levine... No, not Ted Levine. Uh, Kevin Gage, he's gone on to do, like, scuzzy horror movies. You would admit, though, that Kevin Gage bears a resemblance to Ted Levine, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. a very, very yeah. close resemblance. <laughs> okay, so it's not... It, well, how about that, folks? We all learn something new every day. Uh, anyway, so... Did you know that about in Heat, um, John Voight's character is actually based on Eddie Bunker, the yeah. uh, actor? Because mm-hmm. Eddie Bunker was a real criminal Ex-con, who went to jail, yeah. yeah. And he was a novelist, Eddie Bunker. Yeah. Oh, and is John Voight's character implied to be a novelist in this? No. No, but Eddie Bunker, his yeah. first claim to fame was as a novelist. Yeah. Eddie Bunker, of course, known for he played Mr. Blue in uh, in Reservoir Dogs. Any- if you've seen the Dustin Hoffman movie from the 70s, Straight Time, that's based yeah. on an Eddie Bunker novel. Anyway, um, just uh, just commenting on Al Pacino, I, where he cemented his like more late period kind of it's, it's- oscillating between a nice understated performance mm-hmm. and then just completely hamming it up. Sometimes in the same scene, it's uh, it's breathtaking. It's wonderful. Yeah, no, it was his like <laughs> like how The Shining kind of always put Jack Nicholson on, in one box. This movie also put Al Pacino in one box. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then other than that, just this morning I watched the studio uh, Ghibli or Ghibli. I, I guess I'm going to go through life never quite knowing how to pronounce that word. Um, movie Porco Rosso. Okay. Porco Rosso. Rosso. 
That means red pig? A crimson pig. Crimson pig. That would be Rosso. Yeah. Which is a charming little, uh, sort of a kid's film, although obviously not, like, it's an 80s kid's film, so, like... Uh, the characters are smoking <laughs> cigarettes all the time, of like the good just guys like the and Flintstones, stuff. yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, I don't. Uh, I've watched the American dub, so uh, Michael Keaton is the voice of Porco Rosso. Oh, nice! Yeah, it's it's pretty good. It was a fun cool. little movie. I enjoyed it. Good stuff. Um, so for me, I watched uh, Lucio Fulci's uh, first western, Massacre Time. Oh, we saying, got we got to put that on the uh, pod. We need to do another yeah. Fulci fest. We haven't yeah. even. Div- Dove in, and, Dove in? No, yeah, and I've got like I've got some deep end Fulci stuff. I've got like he like, was he was wa- he was working up until like the nineties, was he not? Including the nineties, yeah. Like yeah. I've got I've got his erotic movie drama, um, The Devil's Honey here, which I I have yet to watch. Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought you had that one in the queue for us. It, it will be eventually. <laughs> we should do another Fulci fest because like yeah, there's so much good stuff. Another Pune fest. We got lots yeah. of fests to yeah, get yeah, back yeah. to. By the way, glad to hear Albert Pune is safe and sound. We love you, Albert. Yep. Um, so yeah, Massacre Time starring Franco Nero and George Hilton, and it's it's a solid. Uh, I, I I hate to say second tier spaghetti western, but that's what it is. But it's a solid second tier spaghetti western. It's not a bad thing. I think it definitely is right up there with the. You could you could put it up there not with the Dollars trilogy necessarily, but maybe with like the um, the the Lee Van Cleef, um, you know, uh, Death Rides a Horse film or the Big Gun Down. Up in up in that tier, I wouldn't quite put it. I mean, it's it's probably neck and neck with the original Django. In fact, this film was sold as a sequel to Django in uh, France and Germany. Um, but yeah, real real fun time. Then I watched followed up that with Lucio Fulci's The Beyond on uh, on Friday night, uh, which I watched with a friend of the pod, Jonathan Manley, who has not appeared on the, the show yet. But We're, we've done that on the show. We did, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, that was during the first Fulci Fest. Um, Excellent movie. Yeah, yeah, still holds up. Still great film. Uh, and then last night I watched. Uh, Sion Sono's Suicide Club, aka Suicide mm. Circle. That movie is great. Yeah, it's like, a good one. Noriko's Dinner Table, like even better. Yeah, I'm gonna, it, it goes places. Uh, I'm going to track it down. Suicide Club only hints at. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm going to track it down because like yeah. it leaves you. It's one of those films that doesn't have a plot ending, but an emotional ending. Yeah. And like I'm starting to like because I watched the only Sion Sono film I'd seen was um, Prisoners of the Ghostland, his Nicolas Cage one, which I wasn't that hot on it's like i i for me world building doesn't do it for me like sorry dune fans but like i if you like tell a good story above all else but this film was amazing um i didn't know where it was going especially that opening sequence like i wasn't expecting the music it was set to um and yes i can confirm that uh corporately manufactured pop groups are the root of all evil after watching this film uh really really good so without further ado let's watch Color Me Blood Red. Color Me Blood Red. We'll be right back. If you're looking for more horror outside of the mainstream, look no further than Unsung Horrors, a podcast about underseen horror movies. I'm Lance. And I'm Erica. Every other week, we'll cover a horror movie with fewer than 1,000 views on Letterboxd. We'll even give you double feature recommendations to pair with the movies we discuss. From gothic to shot on video, from slashers to comedies, from giallo to J-horror. We'll cover all the subgenres. So join us as we unearth these hidden gems of horror. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Unsung Horrors, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And that was Color Me Blood Red. All right, so just eight months after 2000 Maniacs had been released, Friedman and Lewis got to work on making Color Me Blood Red. The concept that they set out with for Color Me Blood Red was to intensify what they had started with Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs. Unlike their previous films, this time actors were all over Friedman and Lewis to appear in Color Me Blood Red. Uh, this was for five reasons. One, they would get screen credit. Two, unlike a lot of independent productions at the time, Lewis and Friedman's movies actually got finished. Three, also unlike a lot of other independent productions at the time, their films actually played across the country. Four, the films had real schedules. And five, the actors actually got paid. Which is a big difference. Not that that their previous films hadn't, but they had proven themselves as a commodity where, like, these films come out, we get paid, and you actually get seen. Uh, they shot the film in Sarasota, Florida, which was unusual for the time, as most films in Florida tended to be shot in either Miami or Orlando. Sarasota, Florida is also the home of notorious low-budget filmmaker Fred Olin Ray, uh, known for the films The Alien Dead, Scalps, Evil Tunes, and Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. <laughs> Uh, the film had a budget of only $30,000, but even though this was less than half of the budget for 2000 Maniacs, it wasn't difficult for production because uh, 
the film had a much smaller, smaller scale than 2000 Maniacs, uh, and even Blood Feast, for that matter. It had fewer locations. Also, the crew that Lewis and Friedman had built on 2000 and Maniacs returned and were working like a well-oiled machine at the time. Uh, so making me color me blood... Uh, making Color Me Blood Red was actually an incredibly efficient production. The film was shot in only six days. Uh, Friedman and Lewis rented a house on the beach for the cast and crew to stay in, and they also filmed there as well, which was the main setting. However, due to the main filming location being on a beach, the constant lo- uh, lapping of waves was a nightmare for recording uh, for recording sound, making it very difficult for David Friedman to get clean recording of dialogue. They used more fake blood in Blood Feast than, than 2000 Maniacs. Sorry, they used more fake blood in Color Me Blood Red than in two, Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs combined. But they were disappointed in their big gore shot in the film. This is the scene where Adam has a woman strung up and squeezes blood from her intestines onto his into a bowl. Uh, because they requested their usual assortment of animal intestines, but no one could find any in Sarasota, so they had to use wood shavings that they soaked in fake blood. Um, apparently the soil in Sarasota is of such a strange makeup that worms cannot survive in it when the time, uh, well, let's actually get into the plot of the film before we get into these, these nitty gritty details. And also we'll talk about the dissolution of the partnership between Dave Friedman and Herschel Gordon Lewis as well. So guys, where does the film start? Uh, I believe it starts in an artist's studio gallery a gallery yes right so oh no it actually yeah it starts with the the guy coming out uh yeah, farnsworth is his name farnsworth yeah so we start ba- we don't we don't actually realize this until the end of the movie but the movie starts at the end um, yeah and he comes out with a canvas uh he does not show the audience the canvas he holds it he carries it and then he solemnly it's it's like it's sort of like a funeral procession he solemnly drops it face down which is not what you want to mm-hmm. do with a painting nope um, and he gets a big red can labeled gas, and he uh, pours some of the liquid inside the can all over the canvas. Way too much, you'd think. Yeah. Uh, and then he lights a match, kind of in a very nifty kind of a way. He, like, lights it, and then he cups it with his hand. Yeah, to shield it from the wind. Uh, and then he flicks it uh, onto the painting, which then burns. And then out of the painting's canvas, somehow... Uh, don't know how this works blood scientifically, emerges. but blood starts oozing out of the canvas. Ooh, and then we get our title card. Yes, which, Phil, you said was a fantastic title card. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then we meet our painter, Adam Sorg. Adam Sorg. Hell of yeah. a name for a painter. That's mm-hmm. a John Houseman name. <laughs> yeah. So he's very frustrated because he cannot find the proper color red for his paintings. No matter what kind of red or mixture of paints he tries, it just doesn't come out right. Uh, we- before Pantone. Yeah, that's true. We meet his girlfriend. Who... We should say that he's very, uh, very varied styles out of this artist. He's got some uh, very abstract stuff, mm-hmm. some just like splatter sort of uh, Pollock stuff. Yeah. He's got um, more like a, a Picasso kind of cubist figures. Mm-hmm. And then he's got straight up abstract shapes like I, I can't Rothko and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, he's got like 10 different schools of art. Uh... <laughs> Which, which was on purpose. Uh, in the audio commentary on the Blu-ray, Herschel Gordon Lewis and, and David Freeman uh, admitted that they like found a local artist and asked to do like a bunch of different paintings in different styles. So we get, um, so we get so that. That, that. The one that I liked was like an impressionist uh, sort of look at a city, uh, the colors of a city at night. Mm-hmm. kind of through a window kind of thing. I thought yeah. I kind of liked that one. But. That was the one at the art gallery, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we meet uh, his girlfriend, Gigi, who's played by Ellen Warner, and this is actually her only on-screen role. Um, our main actor, uh, the character of Adam Sorg, is played by Gordon Alsheim, and uh, Gordon Alsheim was actually the bane of Herschel Gordon Lewis's existence during this film because he came from the theater and he had a, like a lot of actors came from the theater, but he actually had some experience directing theater. And so he would second guess Herschel Gordon Lewis at every chance he could. He, he looks like a little mini Orson Welles and he kind of carries yeah. himself like one too. I was thinking like Hitler to the artist years. Yeah, a <laughs> yeah. little bit of that too. Well, the, the interesting thing is that both David Friedman and Herschel Gordon Lewis said that like in this film, they actually had the best actors of their entire like collaborations of working together like they were because again the actors were eager to be like a part of it so now they could actually pick and choose as opposed to like we have to get this person um they do point out that this is probably their only film that william Kerwin did not appear in he of course played uh yes. the police officer in blood feast and um the pale freckle-faced bastard 
Yeah, uh, and in 2000 Maniacs, he is the guy hitchhiking his way to a teacher conference That's in correct, Atlanta. Yes. Uh, but he was actually he took a, a a film job out of the country, so he was unavailable. And they also said it kind of made sense because they would have wanted him to play the artist, and like he does not look like a beat beatnik. He had a very well maintained pompadour hair, hairdo. Uh, he wouldn't work in the role of Adam Sarg. I mean, he could have just sort of... He could have messed, gussied up his hair a little bit, <laughs> give it a little, <laughs> a little bit, bit of that sure. razzle-dazzle. Um, nah, but, uh, but I do think, I do think, um, Ulsheim gives a really, really great performance. Like, I think he's, he's actually quite good in it. Like, he definitely plays devious well, and he, he knows how to choose scenery with his eyes and his, like, his, like, putting his head down and his weird sweatiness. Yeah, there's a lot of arced eyebrows and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but he was such a pain in the ass. Like he, because uh, the thing is, Herschel Gordon Lewis and David Freeman, they always have a chance where they will go through the entire script with all their cast and crew so that if anyone has any concerns or questions or suggestions, let's do it now so that we're not doing it on the day of the set when, when we're wasting time and we'll be wasting time. Olsheim decided to do it all on the day of the set, which wasted a lot of time, even though they got it done in six days. The production was a little rough for a lot of other reasons that we'll get into later. But um, But the thing is, Herschel liked his performance enough that he cast him in his next film, Moonshine Mountain. However, on that movie as well, he was even worse, and so Herschel Gordon-Lewis decided never to cast him again in anything. And his career pretty much evaporated. He did have a run on the revival series The New Monkeys in 1987, playing the character of Manfred. God damn, there's a new monkeys? It's totally forgotten. It was not good. <laughs> it only lasted 13 episodes before it was canceled. Um, but back to 2000 Maniacs. So um, Gigi is telling, basically, in every scene... Back G- to... Uh- Sorry, back Call to Call Me Blood, Blood Red. Red. Um, in every scene that Gigi and Adam are in together, they're fighting. They're arguing. They are that miserable couple that should break up but don't. Um, uh, we get the introduction of the water bikes pretty soon, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, first, I think he goes to the, the He goes the to the gallery, gallery. yeah, because yeah. so she comes in he and does tell- that terrible park job where he just kind of like... Stops in the middle of the street and gets out. Yeah, yeah it's a parallel parking situation, but he just does not bother to mm-hmm. maneuver in. Yeah. So, but back to the argument, like, and they have this running gag where it's like, if we were married, the first thing I'd want is a divorce. And that's what Gigi says. And then later on, she says, like, if we were married, the first thing I would get you is a psychoanalyst. Um, And then finally, she's, I think in the third time, it's like, if we were married, and then he kills her. Um, But, uh, but, uh, so she tells him, like, you got to go and meet with Farnsworth at the, at the art gallery in order, because, like, an art critic is coming. And so he like he decides, okay, I'll go, and he puts on his neckerchief and throws on a, a blazer and hops in his convertible and goes and does that crappy parking job you were talking about. And then he gets to the art gallery, and what happens there? Uh, well, we've got the, the art critic. I forget what his name is. He's referred to in the film as a caviar critic. It, it's it's like he's got like a very... He's got like a very... The art pr- critic is like Grigorovich or something. Yeah, like some kind of like vaguely European, but not french or german you pointed him out you're like he's the one in the beret and it's like oh i guess that makes well sense. the interesting thing he's is he's also got a cigarette holder yeah yeah, yeah extremely long even for a cigarette holder <laughs> yeah well the interesting thing is that when it came to wardrobing the art critic both friedman and lewis were like art critics just are like regular people like how will we make them stand out and they're like let's just put a beret on them and so they did and so in every scene he's wearing a beret and it makes any of this as soon as you like see him you're like yeah that's the art critic he's wearing a beret um and uh, so basically, the art critic says, "What about uh, Adam?" Oh, he uh, he's just uh, he's in it for the money. He's uh, yep. He's uh, not in it for the art. He just uh, he's like he dismisses it basically. He calls he's not it, saying it's trash. He calls them commercial. He says like you're talented, but what you're doing is clearly commercial. It's not coming from a personal area. And just before Warhol. Yeah, we should also point out that that there's like a funny gag in the background where like when Adam shows up, he notices that one of his paintings is like hung up landscape wise and it's supposed to be vertical. So he like immediately goes and puts it vertical. And then when he's talking to the art critic, the um, the art gallery dealer goes over and puts it back to, to landscape. I like it. It's a little background joke. I like it. It's funny. Um, and so Adam Sor, so, yeah, Sorg. Sorg. Uh, he basically says like, "I'll show you. I'll go back and paint something great." And so he goes back home. He's got he's got these two ladies that show up that really admire his work. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're like high society hoity-toity yeah, yeah. elderly women that can afford a fifteen thousand dollar painting in nineteen sixty three. It's a very spa- sparsely populated showing of his work. There's like five people there. Yeah, and like and they literally wait for his painting. Yeah, yeah they just stand oh yeah because he does the un- the unveiling. Yeah, 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 and um. So then he goes home, and this is where we get the 
the water boat the water bikes so at the this beach house that um adam and Gigi live in there are two water bikes outside which are like purposely altered bikes on pontoons with like riverboat style like propellers yeah sort of like a like a water wheel for uh for the wheels of the bike um, the front wheels removed yeah exactly it's just yeah. got two back wheels which means like you can't steer as well that's the other thing like these things are like dangerous they got little horns you can honk yeah. though just in case you're gonna run yeah. somebody over but the the funny thing is um the filmmakers said that like this guy approached them like when he heard that they were making a movie close by and said like hey you got to put my water bikes in your movie like they'll be really good in the movie and clearly it's like i'll give them to you for free and then you can show them off and then clearly when the movie comes out my water bike sales will spike and dave friedman and herschel gordon lewis said like the in concept in theory it looked fine but they were no fun at all like it took the most obscene amount of exertion just to get going and you can see it in the movie, too, where everyone's like, all right, guys, let's go. And then they pedal really hard and go nowhere. <laughs> um, so anyway, she's saying, like, oh, like, Farnsworth is coming by. And he's like, oh, all right. And so he stomps back. He, well, he first he knocks his girlfriend, who's fully clothed, like, in her non-swimming trunks, into the water. Well, yeah, she gets she gets on the other water bike and follows mm-hmm. him out because he's out there having a blast water biking away. Yeah. Uh, in his little, um, his little tartan shorts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then she comes out fully dressed, yeah, in jeans and everything. And um, he sort of like he's gonna he, he goes to like hold her hand. And it's he, also here where you're like, how well, how do you stop these things? Well, you just run them into. Yeah, water. that's what happened. They like just crashed into each other. <laughs> so yeah, he takes her by the hand and then just yanks her off the boat and into the water. So she comes out soaked. Uh, then he goes back into his apartment where Farnsworth is, and he's dripping wet from the water because he was in the water. And he basically just argues with Farnsworth about stuff, and he finally says like, you know what? I'll show you a painting. Or no, Farnsworth said like. This painting's not bad, and uh, Adam takes it and just starts punching the painting and, like, throws it on the ground, but a nail sticks out of it. Oh, we forgot the uh, the earlier little gag where uh, he's got a blank canvas, there's something on it, and then he paints a uh, red F on it, and she's like, and his girlfriend Gigi is like, well, what's that? And he's like, F is for Farnsworth. And he, yeah. then he makes this joke again at the gallery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so at this point... His girlfriend comes back in, and she's soaking wet, and they argue again, and then they just decide to get it on, because apparently that's uh, that's how their relationship works. He, he kind of glances at her with these, like, I don't know. These, Peter Lorre eyes? Yeah, these <laughs> Peter Lorre, like, dead-soaked, wet eyes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Glazed over and stuff, and she's like, ooh, I can't resist this. Yeah. So they go in, and then the next morning she comes out, and she reaches down to pick up... Um, the painting that he like smashed and she pricks her finger on the on the the nail and accidentally smears some blood on the canvas she does not accidentally smear some blood on she the canvas. purposely for the purposes of the movie <laughs> smears blood on the canvas but yeah and so then he comes out and uh and, se- and like sees and he's like oh this red's fantastic and he checks it against all the other reds in the house yeah he brings it outside and now the match he goes outside sees it in the sun like it's even better in sunlight he comes back inside and he can't figure it out and then she basically says like, "Oh yeah, I broke. I you know I I cut my finger on that nail," and he's like, "Where? Where?" And he like sees the bandage, and she's like, "Oh, I guess you really care." He's like, "No, it's the greatest color red I've ever seen," and of course we all know where this is going. Where like he reopens the wound, yeah, and uses it, and she's like, "Use your own blood, like you fair, know, fair yeah, enough. which is true." And so he does, and he gets all woozy and has to <laughs> like, take a nap. <laughs> he gets he gets very faint. Yeah, so he gets faint. He takes a nap. He like has a bad technique for applying the blood. He too. smears like he it with his finger. He just kind of like ugh, gets it on there, and then yeah. And so he's not like he doesn't have his little uh, mm-hmm. little painting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, he does not have a palette. A palette he does not yeah. have a palette. Thank you. No. And so then later on, um, his girlfriend comes back and she sees that he's passed out on the couch, and she's like, "Oh, you can't do this. Like, there's no, there's like." This is just a dumb way to, like, paint. He's like, but it's the best red I've ever had. She calls him a vampire. Yeah. And he, like, just sits around and pouts all day. And then she comes back. They have more of an argument. And then... So painters have a little knife that they use to, like, actually, like, cut yeah. paint with. And he just stabs her in the eye with it and kills her. And then and, he... Well, not right in the eye. Kind of in the temple. Yeah. He gets her, gets her right in the temple. Right into the brain. And once he goes into the brain, he basically grabs her by the head and like rubs <laughs> he her face that. against the palette or he against uses, the canvas. He uses her head as a brush. <laughs> Going yeah. back to his terrible technique. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and so it does well like and so he brings oh yeah the, the painting is a big success yeah he brings the painting to the it actually art looks kind of cool it does but a little bit morbid as hell because it's about a woman with a knife through her head that's clearly his, it's like his serial killer art basically yeah yeah, yeah. so well, he we also see her him bury the body and this is where we get to that weird soil oh, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. like a white it's it looks a, like ash a white yeah so this is the soil so this ties into so like later on so he buries the body in sand not very deep uh, and he puts a stick in the area, pointing up just so that he always has a marker of where she's buried. And he also throws the bandage in there. Yeah. He's a very he, sentimental yeah, man. Yeah, he's, he's romantic. Um, but, uh, so he, he he does all that, and the thing is, when they're making it, like, they set it up so that later on when the body is discovered, there'd be worms crawling out of it. However, unfortunately, in Sarasota, Florida, the soil there, like, worms could not survive in it. They'd die instantly. So to actually find worms, they had to go to a privately owned worm farm where somebody raised worms as pets, and they had to rent twenty-four pet worms. Raised worms as pets. Yes, as pets for like <laughs> for like you know like worm farm like you know I I don't know like pet worms. Um, and so they like had to guarantee like we will return all these worms totally unharmed when we come back. So they shoot the scene, but because it's a night shoot and they're only shooting six days, like they finish at like two or three a.m. in the morning. The crew is exhausted. It's like all right, let's find these these worms. They only found 23. And so they're searching and searching and searching, and they're just going insane until eventually, I think it was the assistant camera operator said, I'll give you a 24th worm. And he takes, he took one of the worms and cut it in half, because you can do that, because worms have like nine hearts, is it, or something? I don't know how it works. It's something. But they can regrow appendages. And so he just put the two worm bits in with the other 22 worms, and all of a sudden, when he returned it, there's 24 worms. And they, they waited to see if they were ever going to get any blowback from the worm farm. There wasn't. None were the wiser. Again, pet wor- Florida is a weird place. Pet worms. Pet worms. Because you know all the tricks you can teach them to do. Well, there's that, that Sesame Street thing where they had that little worm there, and he would do the... Yeah. Real worms don't do that, though. The uh, circus? Yeah. So he takes the painting to the art gallery where the art critic raves about it. and says, like, oh, I was wrong about you, blah, blah, blah. And then the... Um, the rich old woman. Oh, who we should point out, we meet, just before he goes back to the art gallery, this is when we meet the B-plot of the film, which is April, her the boyfriend, beatniks. her boyfriend and her two beatnik friends. Her boyfriend, Rolf. Rolf, played by, uh, I think it's Jeremy, let me look up his name, because I have it here. Played by Jerome Eden, who returns from 2000 Maniacs. Uh, he plays Rolf. He, in 2000 Maniacs, he plays the, the victim who got ripped apart by horses, and he also appeared in, in Blood Pre blood priest blood feast as the high priest in the egyptian flashback but he was uncredited blood priest sounds like a great movie though. blood priest <laughs> yeah um or, yeah or like an early 80s metal band yeah like a satanic panic mm-hmm. metal band <laughs> yeah and uh candy connor plays april or condor rather plays april carter she also appeared in 2000 maniacs as the switchboard operator we should also play that uh, Farnsworth is played by Scott H. Hall, who played the police captain in Blood Feast. Ah. Yeah. Um, and Pat Finn Lee plays Sydney, which apparently is for April's mom. So April's friends are Sydney and, uh, Jack. and Jack. And uh, which is a, they're like, initially, like they seem like the most painful people to be around yeah, just insufferable just insufferable they show up wearing matching wigs and matching blue shirts and matching glasses and then they like do a jig yeah it's like this is too much yeah yeah and uh april's mom has a real weird thing about sydney being a girl's name which i guess it was weird for the because like, it used to be s-i-d-n-e-y it was a mask a male name yeah it's kind of like leslie you don't really hear too many men being named leslie anymore or kelly yeah that's true or kim yep kim yep. was a, a i knew kim, a kim stacy yeah, Ashley, that's true. I, I, yeah. I was friends with a guy named Ashley back in the back yeah, in the day. yeah. I think he's shortened it to Ash. Mackenzie, cool. Mackenzie, yeah, yeah. These are all the old names that have like none come the other way. There's no men named Amanda or something. No, no. But um, but uh, so so Pat Finley plays Sydney under the pseudonym of Patricia Lee. She only had a few appearances in other films. She, most notably, she was in Porky's, where oh. she played the role of stripper. <laughs> um, she was in Young Guns as Janie, and she was in Late for Dinner as Susan. And by the way, uh, this is totally off topic, but Late for Dinner is a forgotten 1991 film that I highly recommend. It's kind of like a sci-fi drama about uh, two guys who get um, cryogenically frozen in the 60s, and then in like, I think it's 61 or maybe the, the mid-60s, and then they show up 25 years later, they get thought out. 
vaguely remember this. Yeah, I, feel it, like it was I remember the trailer yeah. shown on TV, or maybe I'm just remembering the trailer. But yeah, yeah. It, it 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 had a big hoopla, and then it kind of went nowhere. But like as a kid, I always loved that concept of being able to live to see the future. Um, and That's what uh, Walt Disney's trying to do. That was a big trope, the cryogenically frozen thing in the early 90s, because there was that Mel Gibson movie as well. Oh, Forever yeah, Young. Forever Young. Yeah. yeah. Encino Man is sort of like that. Yeah, that's true. I think it's a bunch of boomers trying to... And then, try, and then trying Austin to, Powers kind of killed it. Yeah. I think it's boomers trying to hold on to their youth, thinking, like, we could we could, we could, have stayed young. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so she had an interesting career. And uh, she actually, like, won me over in this movie at first. Like, I thought she was insufferable. And then by the end, it's kind of charming. And same thing with the guy who played her boyfriend, whose name I don't have written down here. Oh, no. Uh, Jack is the yeah. the character name, but I don't know who the actor is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. William Harris, actually, Greg Gregovich, that's the name of the art critic, uh, is played by William Harris, who also appeared in Moonshine Mountain after this for Herschel Gordon-Lewis. So, back to the plot. We meet the beatniks, and they're going to go out to the beach, and they're cool with it. And then her mom goes to the, um, Mrs. Carter, goes to the art gallery where he reveals his new bloody painting, and uh, she's like, I must have it. And the art gallery, uh, the uh, Farnsworth says, like, well, it's $15,000, which even the art critic is like, that's ridiculous. That's yeah, like, a even, lot of money for Not like- even Picasso or or uh, what's the other one? Or Jackson Pollock goes for that much money. And he's like, well, this is a one-of-a-kind thing. It'll be shown in galleries and museums, and I can rent it forever. And then what happens? Oh, uh, our artist Adam Sorg, he has an outburst. He, he does not want this painting to be sold. It's not for sale because his own blood and sweat went into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's not wrong. Yeah, and the Gregovich even says like, "I can tell that there's a part of, <laughs> a part of Adam in this painting." And Adam's like, "Yeah, yeah, there is." My, my, <laughs> he's I, looking haggard, by the way. Ever since he used his own blood, uh, yeah, and got and fainted because he was, I think his brain just went as the idea because he looks yeah. haggard and kind of uh, sweaty and tired for the rest of the film. Oh yeah, so. Um, and so, like, he basically tells Gregovich, like, hey, so you see now, do you take it back? And Gregovich is like, well, you know what? Everyone has one painting in them. Can you actually do it again? This, this bastard. <laughs> Gregovich, Gregovich. Just uh, wants more blood. Yeah, so Gre- so Adam just tells him, like, well, you wait and see. I'm going to go and make another painting just to, just, to, just to show you. And so he goes back home. And lucky, luckily for him, another young couple, not, yeah. not the same couple that we've well that's that's the thing the 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 beatniks uh are april and her friends show up to the beach right next to uh, adam's house on the beach however there's a couple making out there and they're like yeah let's get out of here this ain't our scene so so they go to a different part of the beach and then the making out couple they're like these bikes look like fun yeah they just see some water bikes and they say like let's go for a ride Without checking to see if they have owners, without checking to see, like, they go into private property, steal these bikes, and decide to go for a ride in the ocean. Well, I think the boyfriend is like, these bikes probably belong to somebody. Yeah, yeah. And the girlfriend is like, we're not going to go very far with them. No, exactly. Just to your death. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, Adam sees this, and he goes out in his trusty speedboat to um, basically annihilate them. He goes spear fishing. Yeah, so he gets his spear out. He rams the boyfriend with the spear and kills him in the water. Um, we should point out, so they actually had some some meat, some red meat to throw into the water to look like gore as well as some like some of their fake blood. But the problem was, the, well, the meat didn't attract sharks, which is what they were actually afraid of. It attracted um, seagulls that would constantly swoop in and steal the meat out of the ocean. So like by the time they actually shot the, the gore sp- stuff, all they had were like bloody rags to show for the, uh. for the gore. Um, and so we don't see it, but he captures uh, the woman who is Mitzi, played by Kathy Collins, in her only film role. Um, and he, we then get like the big gore shot of the of the the film. And this is, I think, the scene where I said, did I explain yet that they wanted to do yeah, intestines, yeah, yeah. but they couldn't, so they had to use wood chips or wood shavings. I mean, they did not look like wood shavings. No, they 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 soaked them in in red blood. Um, so he basically like, paints another film. Uh, painting which started off as a really weird painting of a fish eating a man but the fish has one woman's foot at the end of it it's it's a weird uh lady leg fish yeah it's a a lady leg but it's also a fish and it's also uh eating a man it's a bad painting yeah uh, it's not good uh, phil described as outsider art and i think that's that's pretty much correct i think it's outsider fart really (laughs) (laughs) those grade three insults just keep coming back um (laughs) So at this point, 
you'd be a great like pithy uh <laughs> third film <grader>. critic like <laughs> it's more like an outsider's fart am i right guys <laughs> <laughs> uh, regular jay sherman yeah <laughs> two and a half stars i say yes <laughs> out of three because i'm not a bad guy um but uh what was i going to say so we get, uh, so he makes a new painting, which he actually, it improves yeah. the painting. Yeah, he it definitely does because mm-hmm. he covers up most of the uh, lady legfish. But he, he goes yeah. over there and he like squeezes the blood out. He's got a bowl. Yeah. I've been, the entire film, I was like, get a bowl or something. Yeah, don't to just cool the rub blood. people's faces don't against them. Yeah, use their body parts. Yeah. And he does. He's got her hanging up and he's got her intestines out and he's like squeezing the intestine to get the, uh, mm-hmm. the blood in. I did notice, unfortunately, uh, the bottle of blood in his hand while he was doing this because you could actually kind of see it behind the yeah. end. HD, so, man, what are you going to do? Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. It would have been amazing to see this at a drive-in in 19... Well, we'll get into why it wasn't seen in drive-ins uh, or much of anywhere when it was initially released. Um, anyway, he brings this painting to the uh, the gallery as well. Yeah, and instantly uh, April's mom is like, yes, we will. I will buy this one. And he's like, it's also not for sale. It, it does, this one doesn't look good, to no. be honest with you. It just th- looks like... I think it's just the original paintings, like Aura being like, I got to have one of these paintings. And because uh, she knew, she wanted to pay the $15,000. Like that is a year's wages in 1963. Like they want, she wanted to pay that to get a like a middle class wage. Yeah, it's like you could, you know, buy your house with that. My dad so, never got paid fifteen thousand for a painting. God damn. Yeah. Oh yeah, because your dad was an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he ever use blood in his paintings? Maybe that's where he uh, he failed. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't go full maniac. Um. <laughs> so um. He used he, ashes in the yeah. painting, actually. Mm-hmm. I got him some press. Oh, right. His brother's ashes. Mm-hmm. Mixed them into the paint. Yeah. Well, if I have that painting, it's up in my apartment still. Oh, great. Is so that the one of your uncle? Yeah. So oh. my uncle is actually yeah. living in, in my apartment. Yeah. No ghosts yet? None that I know of. Cool. <laughs> Could be, though. Um, so uh, I, do, I should say Kiss, the rock band Kiss, uh, in the 1970s when they had a comic book published by Marvel, they actually had their blood mixed in with the ink. Even though I think Marvel didn't even use it at the end, they're like, nah, we're not going to... Did they really, though, or is that just a publicity thing? They withdrew the blood, and they they showed it being put into, like, the ink batch, batches for the printing. Who knows if that's actually... If it actually... I don't think Marvel would have done it, because that's... Kiss mythology. <laughs> yeah, because it would it would have... I mean, Kiss sells Kiss coffins. Like, yeah. I hope they haven't sold any. <laughs> trying to imagine if you're somebody fa- <laughs> solemnly buried in a kiss coffin <laughs> i remember gene simmons pitching the the kiss, kiss coffins and like there's a button on it or like a, a motion sensor that every time it goes by it says i want to rock and roll all night should have been the end of the irishman when robert de niro is picking out his own coffin <laughs> he gets the kiss coffin. <laughs> he gets the kiss coffin. i want the gene simmons one <laughs> uh, do action broads and song kiss <laughs> nice um so at this point, our uh, we go back to our our gang of uh, wonderful youths, and they they go to the beach again. And so they go, they actually get now get closer to the house uh, that Adam lives in. Yeah, they're in a car. Our two yeah. insufferable beatniks are in the back seat wearing Beatles wigs and blowing bubbles out of pipes, novelty yeah. pipes. Mm-hmm. They've got these weird like vests that they're wearing. Yeah, they like to match. It's weird. Ugh. They're a weird couple. Um, so they, so they make a big hoopla about like, okay, we're at the beach. Where are we going to change? Um, uh, Rolf has his swim trunks underneath his pants, which everyone at first is like, Hey, what are you doing there, pal? When he goes to take them off, but he's like, I got them under my pants. Everyone's like, ha ha ha. Um, the, uh, beatnik. We we should also point out that Rolf is almost certainly wearing the exact same trunks seen on, uh, Adam, uh, Sorg, Adam Sorg earlier. It's the same, uh, tartan shorts. Yeah. Hey man. Tight production. <laughs> yeah, swap underwear. Go on, do it. Just like at Disney World when they used to be communal underwear for the uh, for the mascots. Oh, yeah. It, it they they unionized and that was the first thing to go. It was like we're not sharing underwear anymore. Disney's like, what? Why not? This is the way that we can guarantee it's you're wearing the proper underwear. If we get yeah. Um, long story short, um, so the beatniks change underneath towels somehow and. April's like, well, I'm sure that house over there is abandoned, even though it doesn't look abandoned. And so she goes over behind the house to change. 
And at, she was also in a conversation with her mother earlier, told that the oh, artist yeah. lives. Oh yeah, the artist lives that, at this like what is it, the dessert? They call the, it the deserted cove. The deserted cove is the name of it. So it's just them and the artist. Don't worry, mom. Nothing's gonna happen up at deserted cove. Yeah, it's almost saying like you know you're going to Camp Crystal Lake for the weekend. <laughs> um, uh, so at this point, our our painter notices her and comes out and sets up an easel and basically says like, hey, like you want to model for me, like come back later on tonight and I'll, and I'll paint you like you, you look really great. I'll make you famous. And I'll she's make, like, make you a mortal. He even yeah. Says, so. And then she's like, do you have to be nude? And he's like, no. And that's true. Um, he's not interested in the movies, just the blood. Nope. So she goes back, uh, to her friends. They have like a wonderful afternoon. They make a can- they make a fire. They roast weenies and marshmallows. The beatniks ruin it. The beatniks kind of ruin it. Yeah. By like throwing food around. But I like how they like rhyme everything. Like, Hey, Jack hands off the strap. Um, it, it's very beatnik yes. Yeah, and um, <laughs> and so um, uh, April tells Rolf, like, the plan, like, oh, this painter wants me to pose for him, and she, he's like, no, he's not. Let's go to a gas station. You'll call him and tell him no. He, the first thing he's like, I bet he wants you to be nude, and she's like, no, he doesn't. And so he, um, so he, like, convinces her to take the car and go, but she doesn't tell him that it's the guy lives in the house just down the beach. So she drives over goes around and uh and goes and he convinces her like hey just 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 pose for a little bit like adam tells her like just just sit down and like let me figure this out or let me think about it and the entire time you're like he's just trying to figure out a way to restrain her so that he can you know get her blood right and she actually makes a quip at one point she's like boy that paint over there looks like blood and then he flips out at which point she correctly is like yeah, I'm gonna go. Yeah, she. The, here's the thing: <laughs> for all the guff about these films being, you know, like exploitation cinema, she actually does the responsible things. Like, yeah, I'm out of here right now. Well, she, until he the convinces problem is her she not doesn't. To. He convinces her. Yeah, He's yeah, like, yeah. But stay, just pose over here. Yeah. And she's like, oh, okay. And so he gets her to pose, and she even offers to take her top off. But he's like, no, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, and then she notices the gun on his, uh, and she's got has, a rifle mounted on his yeah. fireplace, and she's like, oh. ooh, can I touch that? And he's like, no, don't. It's loaded. And, of course, this is going to come up later. Yeah. It's all, like, I mean, there's foreshadowing in this movie, <laughs> which is a totally different thing for a, a Herschel Gordon-Lewis film. Um, so, at this point, um, we're back at the campfire. Rolf, like, tells the beatniks that his girlfriend's gone, and they kind of point out, like, oh, there's there's a house over there, and, oh, there's a light on it, so I guess someone lives there. And Rolf tells them, okay, me and April went and gathered wood for the fire beforehand. You guys go and gather wood now. And so they go out to gather wood, and they're getting sticks, and they're in that very same spot where Adam buried Gigi. Where he just had to have that one stick up. Yeah, and so, of course, um, the the female, be- Sydney pulls the, uh, the stick out of the ground, and they see a leg, and this is when the Jack says, Holy bananas, that's a human leg. <laughs> Holy bananas. S- Sydney a- has a good line here, too. Yeah. She's like, dig that crazy driftwood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> after, And this is after they see that it's a, it's a dead body. Covered in worms. We yeah. see the worms on the face. And so Rolf is like, oh, my God, like, we got to call the police. I'm going to go to that house over there and, and use their phone and call the police. So he goes over, and back at the house... Um, he, uh, Adam has April in such an awkward pose where her arms are up, and he's like, I'll make it easier for you. And so he tie, he basically throws a rope over a beam and ties her arms up so she can't get away. And she's like, hey, I'm all tied up. I was just thinking yeah. of the uh, Leah Sadu uh, pose in oh, uh, French Dispatch where she's yeah. got her arms like this, but yeah. she does get to take breaks. Mm-hmm. And... This film is definitely an influence on the French Dispatch. Yes, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I think we all agree on that. Um, so after that, yeah, he ties up her arms, and yeah. still she's like, okay. It's well, because like, he, gotta... he pitches at, like, oh, I'm helping you rest your arms so that you don't have to, like, hold them up of your own will anymore. Um, and then Rolf comes in, like, just doesn't even knock, just opens up the door, and it's like, I'm here to use your phone. We found a body in the outside. <laughs> I love that he doesn't knock. <laughs> he doesn't knock, just walks in, and, and he's like, hey, you can't come in here without asking. He's like, I am in here, and my girlfriend's tied up. Oh, and because Adam had the axe out at oh, this point, oh, right, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah so Adam, Adam like, had told, convinced uh, April to look the other way. And count to 20. And count to 20, and so he gets his bowl. And he's like, don't worry, by the time you get to 20, it'll be done. Yeah, he, he gets an axe <laughs> and a bowl. And the bloody bull. And so Rolf comes in and, and he like instantly grabs the gun and he says, spurts out like, 
And, the, and Adam's like, hey, what's going on here? He's like, well, between me coming in here, my girlfriend tied up, you holding an axe and a bloody mess and a body out in front of your house, I'm a little concerned. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> and, and Rolf is like, or no, Adam's like, listen, that body outside, she had a nothing life. It doesn't matter. Listen. Well, at first he's like, Wait, how did you know it was a she? I didn't say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or he's like, that woman out on the beach, she's nothing. I had nothing to do with it. Like, yeah, exactly. Wait a minute here. <laughs> how did you know it was a woman? Um, so... And at this point, the beatniks come in, and they say, because initially, well, he knocks the gun out of his hand. Yeah. Yeah. And then, well, Sydney comes in, and she's got another good line. Yeah, which is like, oh, she says, dig uh, this crazy hey, game. Hey, man, dig this crazy game of charades. <laughs> she's a total riot, that Yeah, Sydney. yeah, she won me over. And basically, <laughs> in this distraction, like, Rolf reaches down, gets the gun, and shoots it, and blows Adam's face off. And he so he walks around with a bloody mess, up, like, for a face. And he fall- like a true artist. He falls on the canvas. He's like, I gotta finish this work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's the end of Adam. Then we go back to the start of the film, which is at the gallery where we see the painting burning. And Farnsworth explains to uh, Gregovich that uh, this is more of a funeral pyre than an actual like disposal of a painting. And Gregovich is like, well, he could have at least saved the frame first. Well, he's like, you could have sold this, too. Like, you could have yeah. made some money. He's like, ah. Yeah. yeah. And that's Color Me Blood Red. Easy so, come, easy go. So yeah, so let's get into, and this is the part that I really wanted to talk about. Um, let's talk about the falling out of Friedman and Lewis. So after the great successes of Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs, their main financier, Stanford Kohlberg, approached Lewis and Friedman and told him told them that he would be holding back all the profits from Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs to show a bank in Chicago a huge bank balance in order to secure a line of credit specifically dedicated to a full slate of gore films. Because this was not meant to be the end of a trilogy. They meant to keep making gore films throughout the 60s. Oh, I lost my spot. Kohlberg put up the money along with some of the other financiers that they would normally go to to make Color Me Blood Red, and they went off to shoot it. During filming, it became clear that something was off with Kohlberg. After filming had wrapped, Friedman and Lewis traveled to Chicago and met with the bank that Kohlberg told them about. The managers of the bank said that Kohlberg had approached them initially and that they actually wanted to open up the line of credit. However, Kohlberg had broken off all contact and killed the deal. It turns out that Kohlberg wasn't using the profits in order to like secure future financing. He was using it to purchase a new theater. Friedman and Lewis then sued Kohlberg to get their share of the profits, as did the other investors in Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs. This put Color Me Blood Red into limbo, as technically Kohlberg was the majority investor in it and wanted to put it in his theaters, but Lewis and Friedman refused to finish the film until he paid them the money owed it to them, which he refused to do. With no money coming in from Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs, Lewis and Friedman quickly put Moonshine Mountain together and into pre-production. But just before the start of filming, Friedman and Lewis had a minor argument, and Friedman disappeared. With no recourse, Lewis had to go on without Friedman and make Moonshine Mountain. Uh, Friedman admits that at this time in his life, he was incredibly stubborn and would make snap decisions. Um, After their minor argument, Friedman decided that he was done with the partnership and returned to California. In order to finance his return to California, Friedman reached out to Kohlberg directly to get his money back. Kohlberg agreed as long as Friedman finished Color Me Blood Red. And so Friedman agreed and went to work editing Color Me Blood Red with Robert Sinise, Gary Sinise's father. So Robert Sinise is the credited editor on this film. Uh, Friedman oversaw the editing and finishing of the film. He used music from a music library to score the film, making it one of the very few H.G. Lewis films not to feature original music by Lewis, because normally he did he did the music for Blood Feast, he did the music for 2000 Maniacs, he did the music in most of his films. Um, Friedman gave Kohlberg the finished film, and Kohlberg paid him his money owed. It's not a very, uh, like, almost like a Pink Panther kind of saxy, yeah. beatnik vibe to it. Yeah. Um... When Kohlberg asked him who would be distributing Call Me Blood Red, Friedman responded, you are. Uh, but while Kohlberg was an exhibitor, he had no experience in actual distribution. So at the peak of Call Me Blood Red's first release, it only played in just under 200 theaters. This is far from the thousands of theaters that had played Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs across North America during their first releases. In the end, the film didn't even break even on its budget of $30,000. Friedman and Lewis met briefly to split up the ownership of their film assets, and then they never spoke again for almost 20 years. Friedman said that the dissolution of their partnership was the single greatest mistake of his professional life and his personal life. Not only did he lose the best business partner he ever had, but he also lost the best friend he ever had. God damn, man. Both Lewis and Friedman say that by the time 
they were making the blood trilogy, they were so close that they didn't even have to speak full sentences to communicate. One could say, hey, I think, and the other would say, yes, that makes total sense. Herschel Gordon Lewis didn't see the finished Call Me Blood Red until two years after it had been finished, which was in 1965. So even though this film was shot in 1963, it came out in 65. Moonshine Mountain came out before this film, even though it was shot afterwards. Um, David F. Friedman didn't see Call Me Blood Red uh, until something, again, after it was finished, until something weird video put it out on VHS in the 1990s. They were reunited at a retrospective screening of their films in the 1980s, at which point they instantly reconciled and resumed their friendship. They both speak openly and honestly about their falling out and the regrets and lost years that followed. So, and I touched about it in my uh, intro, but this film really first became known about in 1972 when, I forget who it was, somebody licensed uh, Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, and Call Me Blood Red and put them on a triple bill billed as the Blood Trilogy, even though it wasn't intended to be a Blood Trilogy and no one thought of it until that time, and started touring it around the country. And that's when the head of Something Weird video, um, Mike Rainey, saw it for the first time, because he saw all three films in one go. This also brought the film to places that it hadn't seen it before. So it played New York City in the grindhouses and played in like a lot of places where the films just didn't travel, because they were mostly... Um, smaller cities and drive-ins. So they were reunited at a retrospective screening, and at the screening, Lewis was asked if he was an artist. Lewis responded, have you seen these movies? Um, Even though they didn't speak direct for nearly 20 years, they both went to see each other's films when one of them were released. So like, Lewis went to go see Friedman's movies, Friedman went to go see Lewis's movies. Uh, it has been said that the reason their partnership worked so well was because Lewis was a consummate businessman when it came to filmmaking, and David Friedman was more the artist, which is odd because Friedman is the producer and Lewis is the director. Lewis is quoted as saying, I see filmmaking as a business and pity anyone who regards it as an art form and spends money based on that immature philosophy. At the end of the day, though, Friedman and Lewis were not cynical people and always tried to translate the lack of cynicism on screen. So anytime there was any regional heat or attempts at censorship, they just laughed it off. Um, Because what were these people really going to do? They never even submitted their films to the MPAA and never needed to. And so this is sadly the the end of their original partnership. However, it did start up again with Blood Feast 2 in the early 2000s, which we'll be talking about in our next episode. So guys, what are your final thoughts on Carmi Blood Red? Phil? This was another fun one. I mean, it, yeah. it's it of course has a similar padding to uh, 2000 Maniacs. This is, but this is more comical padding, though. But uh, Yeah, beatniks and such. Yes. I should also, I forgot to point out, this is the only film that they did where they actually had parallel plot lines that converge at the end. Yes. Because initially, the beatnik kids are not at all related to the painter, and mm-hmm. then they intersect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is a more leisure, way more leisurely paced uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis movie that we've seen so far. Yeah, it's not frantic, and I would actually say like this is the furthest he got away at the, up until the time from the nudie cuties. Because yeah. um, I mean, in Blood Feast, there's a bit of a bit of a tease of some nudity. In Two Thousand Maniacs, there's a lot of horniness going on, but in this film, it's all about the horror. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, any other final thoughts, Phil? No, just another Herschel Gordon Lewis movie that I enjoyed. Cool. Kit, what are your final thoughts on Call Me Blood Red? Yeah, it's a little bit slower, and it's surprising to hear that um, it's got uh, more blood than the first two films combined, because it actually feels a lot less violent, Mm -hmm. like a lot more like just story oriented, even with the padding and stuff. It just, there's a lot less gore gore yeah well that's that's that's, they talked about it It actually has less gore than the previous films but uh herschel gordon lewis also said like the difficult thing was in all the other films there are different ways to rip people apart however at the end of the day with columbia blood red the only thing this guy wants is their blood he doesn't want to eviscerate them he's not doing an egyptian blood right he's not trying to torture them he just wants their blood and so there's only so many ways to to get to that end (laughs) he should have continued painting with people's foreheads and stuff <laughs> uh, i think after the first time he realized it was too difficult anything else practical anything else uh, no it was uh it was it was fun i enjoyed it mm-hmm. and for my final thoughts this is my favorite of the trilogy just because 
I don't know why, but I love beatnik movies because it's that period before hippies took over. It's before and there's, there's even a few daddios. In yeah, this I like it. I like that area where where it was kind of like pre-British invasion, so no one really knew where the culture was going, and everyone assumed like, oh, these kids drinking coffee and reading poetry and books are probably um, probably going to be the next wave of things. And they kind of like crested early, and then came the British invasion, and then the dirty, dirty, dirty hippies. Dirty hippies, and uh, and then and then that was over. So yeah, so I, I enjoy this one quite a bit. Uh, I'm interested to see because Blood Feast Two is a much different beast from the rest of the Blood trilogy. Um, much different feast. Yes, yeah, a much different feast. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Phil. That was a good zinger. Um, and also, it is a film that Herschel Gordon Lewis didn't have final control over the editing of. Uh, so he's not—he was not before he passed away. Super pleased with the film and, and didn't really talk about it too much. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, but we'll get into it. Uh, we'll get into it next episode. So for death by video, I've been Phil. I have been Kit, and I'm still Graham. Saying, please be sure to rewind. Thank you so much for listening. Keep watching amazing movies. Good night. <laughs>